Then you're going to hear from an anonymous Wash U student who committed some petty crimes freshman year and wanted to tell the story of his subsequent interactions with the judicial system. Finally, we spoke off the record to a student who served on the USAIB, that's the University Sexual Assault Investigation Board. They talked to us about some of the pressures they experienced firsthand while serving in that position. All right, let's get started. Okay, so chapter one, RAs, RCDs, and rule enforcement. Uh, so first we spoke to a female RA off the record. She wanted to re remain anonymous. Um, so the, the four of us, we met in Breadco on the Loop, and we chatted with her about her experiences in her role. In general, she told us that rule enforcement in res life is pretty inconsistent. Um, it varies between the many RCDs, and RA training in the fall really only informs you about the written policy that ResLife and WashU have. And in conjunction with that written policy is this unspoken policy as well, right? That is, it's the, the actual implementation of the written policy is very much at the discretion of the RCDs and the RAs who have very different personalities, right, have different thoughts uh, and f own personal philosophies on the implementation of the policy, right? And so at the end of the day, what you have two, two sets of uh, rule structures in place. Yeah. She also mentioned that there are clearly other factors that affect judicial outcomes besides the questions of right or wrong. Um, one clear example of this is a story she told us that involved, uh, or two stories that she told us that involved marijuana. Yeah, so she basically wanted us to draw a comparison between two different cases that she'd heard about during her time as an RA. Um, and the first is an incident where six African-American students, a mixture of freshmen and sophomore students, they were caught uh, smoking a little weed in a sophomore dorm on the South 40. Um, they were caught by the RCD and they were punished. All of them were put on uh, probation. All of them had their parents called, et cetera, et cetera. Um, pretty, you know, pretty run-of-the-mill punishment for b getting caught smoking weed on the 40. Uh, but then this RA also heard about a case that happened off campus in a Wash U-owned uh, building that, you know, had RAs and RCDs. And... It was a slightly different case that also involved marijuana. This case, however, involved a student who was basically dealing. When he was caught, um, the people who entered that room saw a huge bong <laughs> in the middle of the floor. There was just no attempt to hide any evidence. There was bottles full of weed, like paraphernalia, contraptions with secret doors and things like that to store extra weed. Um, and this student, when he was caught, was not put on probation. WashU did not call his parents. Essentially, nothing happened to him. And when this RA looked into it a little bit further, it was implied to her that the reason for that 
was that this student, first of all, is an international student, and second, that his family is a major donor to the university. I mean, what we see here is, you know, exactly the the inconsistency of the implement of, of the unspoken policy, right? Where you have different RAs, different RCDs, but then ultimately different racial characteristics and socioeconomic backgrounds, which leads to two very widely contrasting outcomes in similar cases. Yeah, I mean, anytime you go off the record with an unspoken policy, that opens the door for any kind of bias that, you know, whoever's involved might have, where, you know, clearly race or socioeconomic status matter in this situation. Right, and it's, we can't necessarily prove it, but it seems like, you know, this decision was made at much higher than the RCD level. Like, this punishment decision was made at a much higher level yeah. than, you know, what the RCDs can even control. Absolutely. Yeah. On a lighter note, we, our RA friend, told us a story that involves ResLife's pet policy. <laughs> right. So uh, the story was relayed to us of a student who uh, lived in, in WashU-owned housing, uh, and the student was from St. Louis and had a dog at home. And over, over the course of the, semest- of, of the semester, the student would bring the dog to his apartment time and time again. Right, we're not talking just about like, you know, once in a week or, you know, pet sitting, you know, dog sitting for a week. This would, this would happen consistently multiple times per week over the course of multiple months, right? And as the R, when the RA first heard about this, uh, the RA, you know, con- confronted him and said, look, you can't have your dog in, in your housing. And he said, oh, yeah, all right. And but just blatantly disregarded uh, her, uh, the, the RA's authority. And eventually the RA got fed up, right, after telling him time and time again and went to the RCD to, you know, for backup and support. And the RCD went and confronted him about it and, he, again, just completely disregarded the RCD, uh, the, the RCD's rules as well. And the RA was so frustrated, right, because, you know, part of her position is being able to have the authority and being respected and listened to. And so she asked her RCD eventually, you know, after weeks of this going on, why, how can he get away with this, right? Like, why can't you go, you know, so and above, why can't the RCD go to uh, their superior? And the RCD told her that actually this student uh, was the son of an administrator at WashU and that ultimately the RCD's hands were tied. So while this well, is... he didn't explicitly tell her it was, like, kind of implied. Right, you know, right, right. That, together. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, you know, while this, uh, this, con- this, this is a little bit different from the marijuana narratives, right, where you had maybe uh, race or socioeconomic status uh, in play, here there's another sort of... Uh, comp- there's another component of just being related to a WashU administrator leading to a warped application of uh, the rules. Yeah. Um, It's important to note, though, that our RA friend, at the end of our discussion, she did say that she uh, would classify her experience with ResLife as a good experience. Um, She felt that in most of the situations she was involved in, ResLife did make the right decision. Um, And she pointed out that, you know, for a vast majority of WashU students, ResLife is a great place. It's a very, uh, it's an environment very conducive to education, 
um, and friendship and health. Yeah, and she also mentioned that uh, students actually often get away with a lot more than they think they do. Um, just between the discretion of the RA, the RCD, the judicial board, a lot of students, um, you know, their indiscretions or their whatever they their pranks, their mischief kind of falls through the cracks or they sort of think that they're being punished, but they really aren't. Right, right. The the little bit of punishment that there might be is is really just deterrence, right? and it's and it's a bit more hollow than what the student would otherwise perceive. Yeah. So so in the end, when we asked our uh, our our RA friend, um, you know, how she would improve Res Life, the application of our judicial code, our handbook, she basically told us that she still thinks that the rules are applied too inconsistently, and they're already codified. Um, but they need to, need to be made more clear to the RAs and the RCDs, and she would like to see a lot more transparency and a lot more accountability, both within ResLife and in the application of the judicial code. In that vein, we talked to a student uh, who had their own personal experience that wasn't quite as positive uh, with ResLife. I'm a student at WashU. I have been here for a couple of years, and I'm in the College of Arts and Sciences. And I've had some unusual and complicated experiences with the school's judicial and legal process. That's our guest. He wanted to remain anonymous, so we'll just call him Willie. You know the drill. After listening to the second episode of Frame, I thought um, I wanted to come talk about my experience because I think it was definitely different than the idea of a school as a parent figure. And I think that while my experience is certainly unique, it's not something that hasn't occurred before. So in my first few months of watching, my first few months of my freshman year, um, I had a few different things going on. And for all of them, the evidence against me was pretty clear. Um, so there wasn't really anything that I could do. And I was called in to talk with the school's judicial director, Tamara King, um, with this pretty incriminating evidence against me. One of the misdemeanors was a case of petty theft. Naturally, WPD got involved. Within the next hour, my room had been searched by the school's police department. Um, several of the items in my room had been confiscated, some related to the case, some not. Um, an example is a notebook I had that had um, drawings of children on balloon strings that I guess the school found disturbing. That kind of led to taking a few other things. I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think my bottle opener was taken, um, like a lot of weird stuff. So from the get-go, it was this overly aggressive response to something that I had done as a first semester freshman. Um, and then within a week, I was given what, I ended, what ended up to be my punishment for these various misdemeanors, which was moving dorms to a single room um, and then not being able to return to my freshman floor. But there's more. It would range from taking a container of mayonnaise from Bear's Den and putting it on someone's doorknob who I had gotten in an argument with earlier that day to taking three eggs and shoving them into the roof of one of the other floors. And I think that one the school probably knows about because I didn't really think about cameras at that point. Then there was the time he met Tamara King, the judicial director. You know, from the get-go, my meeting was very 
um, it was clear that it was a meeting aimed to intimidate me into admitting to things that some of which I think the school knew about, some of which I'm pretty sure they didn't, but they tried to trick me into thinking they did. Um, so the way the meeting went was, why don't you tell us about some of the other things that you did? And I had to run through my head of all these things that I may or may not be there supposed to be talking about, which ranged from a fake ID being taken at a local music venue that somehow ended up at the school to me just kind of being pressured into sharing a lot more information about what was going on um, as a freshman when in fact I could have been there for something completely unrelated to what I was talking about. Nothing to note right off the bat, uh, intimidation, hasty searches, all the things you hear about in the news and on TV in situations where the police are pretty certain that they have the right man. We wanted to see what was going on his freshman year, so we kind of asked him what made him do all these things that led to his interaction with the judicial system in the first place. You know, I think every freshman comes to WashU and is completely thrown back by what the new, the new experience that they're put into, and people respond to it in different ways. So you have freshmen who drink too much. You have freshmen who... Um, go into new states of depression that they didn't have before. And I was, like, responding to this experience of living in a shared dorm with a lot of people who I didn't really know um, in a completely different environment than my high school and where I grew up. And, yeah, I mean, like, I was responding in ways I shouldn't have, but it was the same types of reactions that a lot of freshmen have to coming to WashU. He also had a few comments to share about mental health. The school puts on a, a mask of caring about mental health, but for what it's worth, if your mental health becomes an issue for them or threatens them in any way, then they kind of try to tiptoe around it. Um, we have resources that are there for people who are dealing with easily fixable issues. Um, but if you have something a lot bigger going on, then you have to kind of seek out those resources on your own. Um, Uncle Joe's is great if you have a bad day or if you are starting to feel depressed, but if you are, you know, committing crimes because of something that might be related to mental health, you can't go to Uncle Joe's about that, and that's a problem. Finally, we asked him some of the same questions we've been pondering all semester. We asked him about whether he thinks it's fair that college students kind of get uh, some extra leeway uh, in society as compared to non-college students. I think there's this complicated issue because I'm glad that I went through the system I went through, but at the same time, if I had received real legal action as a result of what I did, it probably would have hit me a lot harder than the type of punishment that I received did. Um, you know, if you're caught speeding and you have to pay a $200 ticket, you're a lot less likely to speed than you might be if you're pulled over by a police officer and they just shake a finger at you and tell you, to drive slower next time. And I think as my freshman year continued, while I did cut out a lot of the types of activities that I was, um, I had done as, while I did cut out a lot of the activities that I had done earlier in my freshman year, it certainly wasn't the same type of closure that having a, a real legitimate punishment might have provided for me. He also had an idea about how his, his treatment could have been improved. You know, 
methods of like incorporating community service or some type of giving back to the community for what you've taken for it, I think can be super effective, especially on campuses like WashU. Um, you know, I was moved from my dorm and I never had to go back to the people that I pranked or to the doors that I put mayonnaise on and apologize for doing that. Furthermore, if you punch your little sister, you're not going to go to jail. You're going to be disciplined by your parents, and maybe you'll sit in a corner on timeout, and then at the end you'll go to your sister and you'll apologize and you'll hug it out. And that's kind of how I wish my situation had been dealt with um, because, you know, it's that idea of getting closure that'll prevent you from not wanting to repeat the action in the end and feeling like your punishment was appropriate and harsh enough that you are able to learn from it and learn from the consequences, but not so much that it interrupts the the rhythm and the cycle of, you know, being a college student or being in this, this greater family. Additionally, college gives you this halo that you can kind of walk around with where, um, you know, if you are walking down a street and you're wearing a, a Harvard sweatshirt in Massachusetts, people are going to look at you differently than if you're wearing a baggy t-shirt and ripped jeans and like, like there's like racial stuff here too that I want to get into. But um, like, you know, being on a college campus, people assume that you are responsible and mature and smart. And I think that transcends beyond just the general public. It also transcends to um, police officers or whoever it might be. Like you see all these, all these encounters of college students, you know, wreaking havoc on their communities. But yeah, and being able to say I'm a student and getting let off the leash because it's college kids being college kids. Moreover, I mentioned that I think a lot of people have gone through similar things. But I think another problem is that, you know, you you get put in this setting with a police officer or the judicial director and the average student, especially the average freshman, isn't going to step up and do anything about it. Um, there are probably lots of people who, for issues of academic integrity or issues that might be related to mental health, just go with it and assume that this is what's supposed to be happening. And that's kind of what happened to me as a freshman. But I've since been able to realize that like it wasn't right and it wasn't what I deserved and wasn't what was best for me or what was best for the school to kind of handle my situation this way. Yeah, so one thing I thought that was, you know, pretty interesting from what he was saying is he brought up this analogy of family. Um, And that really reminded me of what we talked about in the last episode, some of the research we did about in Loco Prentice, this idea of the university seeing itself as a character-building moral sort of force for its students in a parental sort of way. And when before this was associated with religion, you know, Willie brought up uh, that now this in loco parentis model can be associated with community. And we might actually be coming back to that now. There's this idea that there's something about all of us being WashU students that gives us this common denominator that, you know, makes us obligated to hold each other accountable and to lift each other up in the same way that you would in a, in a, in a close family. Well, and getting back at our overarching thesis question, right, of what's the role of the university in the non-academic lives of its students, one 
possible answer to that is building community, right? And, and that is then supports the academic endeavors, right? And further builds that up. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's fascinating that as someone who had a negative experience with the judicial system uh, here, that this individual was is, is the is the one to offer this sort of metaphor of 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 the whole student body as a community, rather than you know someone who thinks about it in a very positive light. Yeah, I mean it's like we talked about last episode. It's like clearly like the best way to discipline someone is a way where you like there's both positive and negative, uh, and there's like more than just like a hard stop like bad thing like complete complete discipline like jail or like fine there needs to be some middle ground right uh but universities are in a weird spot because you know each student is an autonomous individual it's not like a parent who has some kind of power um you know he suggests community service and that might be part of it um but what i've heard of community service is wiping down all the machines in estrogen and i don't think that's that's not the answer yeah, that's right. simply not the answer. Like that's that, not going to make that, someone. That's not, not rehabilitation. Yeah, that's not yeah. that's not putting mayonnaise. That's not fixing that. That's not fixing putting mayonnaise on someone's door. Yeah, and it's not right. You're never even interacting with the person that you harmed. You're never apologizing to them. There's yeah. There's no restorative justice element, which is what the university has been preaching for a long time. Uh, it doesn't seem like they're applying it. You know, in, another point that in all cases. I have heard of cases where they have applied it, just to right, be fair. Right. Yeah. Well, and another point that he brought up that I think goes back to something, uh, an idea that we previ- previously discussed is, uh, is the notion of being a college student isn't an excuse, right? And as we talk about the, the potential discrepancy between or difference of our internal judicial system and our societal one, right, and the difference in how, you know, drug possession is handled here versus how it's handled, handled five, you know, five miles off campus. Um, that as someone who has, has lived this, has lived through this internal, uh, judicial system firsthand has benefited from it, still offering the comment that, you know, may, being a college student isn't, isn't an excuse, right? That doesn't, uh, that even though, that you might have benefited from it, there, there still is some accountability. That is, is a good segue into our third chapter, right? Whereas here, there really isn't much student accountability, right? And, and Willie brings the point up of us trying to, to hold each other accountable. In chapter three, we're gonna see students being involved in that process. So let's, let's, let's get into that, chapter three the USAIB. Okay, so first a little background on the USAIB itself. The acronym stands for the University Sexual Assault Investigation Board, and its purpose is to independently try cases relating to sexual assault, sexual harassment, things of that nature. It's a three-member panel, and it's comprised of a student and then faculty and staff members who are selected from a pool of pre-trained panelists. This panel then hears all sides of a particular case, and they vote and deliver a verdict to a higher up in the WashU administration. Currently, that individual is Dean Stahl, who will then make the final decision on if there should be a punishment, and if so, what that punishment should be. 
It's also important to note that a WashU lawyer is present for all the proceedings and provides counsel to the board on any legal aspects of the case that they hear, right? They, they have the law background and the panelists don't. And from what we could gather from uh, an interview, that uh, lawyer's name is Deanna Moody. Yeah, so we interviewed a student who has previously served on the USAIB. Um, this interview took place off the record, and they wish to remain anonymous. Um, now, because there have been so few students who have served on this board, um, even giving away their gender would reveal, could reveal their identity. So uh, we're going to keep that to ourselves, and we'll simply refer to this person as Sam. Right. So as we mentioned earlier, all the panelists receive a training. And according to Sam, that training was uh, just two two-hour sessions uh, that spanned the whole broad topic of sexual assault, sexual harassment, domestic violence, et cetera, et cetera, and also uh, covered the role of the USAIB itself. Now, Sam believed that that training was utterly inadequate, just four total hours of training for uh, cases of such high importance. And Sam told us that had it not been for their previous experience studying the topic of sexual assault in class and through other extracurricular involvements, uh, Sam thinks that they would not have been able to serve acceptably on the panel. Even more concerning, the other two individuals who served on the case with Sam, uh, they were both older adults and they, had, they both had what Sam considered to be antiquated views about sexual assault. Um, these were like the sort of opinions that tend to lead to victim blaming. And also due to lack of training, they kind of were unaware of their language that sometimes drifted into triggering or biased language during the hearing. Now Sam also articulated concerns about the immense pressure that they felt from the university's lawyer, again, uh, her name, Deanna Moody who advised the panel to make certain decisions. Um, and according to Sam, these were decisions that seemingly valued the university's interests over reaching a just decision as a panel. Basically, Sam felt the lawyer offered a perspective that influenced the board to choose the option that would protect the university from a lawsuit, thereby really leaving the board's true purpose of justice unfulfilled. Ultimately, in Sam's perspective, this was not an independent board, um, and really not even a board of three members. The lawyer indirectly assumed a position of influence and usurped the decision from the board sometimes. You know, this kind of reminds me of the political landscape in Missouri, right? Uh, la last summer, I had the opportunity to talk to a few state lobbyists from Missouri, and they were explaining to me how uh, because of term limits in Missouri, which limit state legislators to serving only two terms in, in a position, uh, typically that being you know two four-year terms as a state rep or a state senator, the lobbyists who who serve you know who work for decades you know this this being their full-time job their profession, the the lobbyists hold all the institutional power. Right. As, as these state legislators come, you know, come into office and just begin to understand and learn the, the, you know, the legislative process, the lawmaking process, which is pretty complicated. And, you know, there's definitely a steep learning curve. They rely on, on the lobbyists for the institutional power is, you know, this is their job. They know it because they don't they don't get kicked out of their job after eight years. 
And so similarly, I think a parallel can be drawn with the USAIB, right, where the lawyer is the only constant, right? The, the panel switches out on every case, you know, or, you know and a new panel is, is drawn up for each uh, case of, uh, you know, allegation. And as, as Sam pointed out, the, the panel is seemingly unprepared. The panel is looking for direction. And as the only constant, the lawyer, who in a way is also represents WashU, the, the lawyer holds the institutional knowledge, just like the lobbyists do in the Missouri State Legislature. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. Um, and, you know, we got to be careful. We're not we, we don't have enough information or proof to say that this is something that WashU is intentionally doing in the way that they structure the USAIB and this, this rotation. Because in other ways, it makes sense that you'd want, you know, a new panel of different cases, et cetera, et cetera, and you'd want a lawyer there. But still, uh, what Sam told us is that we're seeing this, this basically this institutional memory, institutional power effect. And as Elliot, just as you mentioned, lack of training, lack of direction means that this supposedly independent board uh, actually has to defer to the very institution that it's supposed to be independent from, which is WashU. Yeah, that's true. That seems pretty reckless to me. Um, so with that in mind, we reached out to Tamara King to hear her perspective. Um, unfortunately, she declined to comment. Um, luckily, though, she was on a public panel covering the broad issue of sexual assault and Title IX considerations. Uh, we sent our friend Julia to the panel with a tape recorder. Um, Julia only had time to ask one question, but here it is. Hi, okay, so um, my question is, um, do you, I do, yes. <laughs> um, do you think that um, the disparity between the judicial code and the law provides sort of incentive for reckless behavior um, during students' time at WashU? And secondly, does this, insulation from the outside legal system create habits among elite educated individuals that are sort of, you know, detrimental to society as they come out of WashU? I'll do the first part. So when, when you talk about the disparities between the two processes of the two systems, I've been at the university for 16 years. I'm the person who probably has talked to more um, individuals regarding this topic than anyone else out here other than our health and counseling professionals. And what I would say is, while I totally understand the criminal process, there are, I can count on less than one hand, the number of people who have even seriously entertained filing a criminal charge. The cases that we're working with, quite frankly, are a lot of times those cases in the gray. But if it did go to the prosecutors, come to a prosecutor's attention, they're going to look at what the information is, and oftentimes they're going to decline to take the case because there's all sorts of other issues that they don't believe they're going to even be able to begin to reach the threshold of uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. So when you compare the two processes, I think it's important to point out the difference in the burden of proof is huge. Plus, the federal government has said you got 60 days. That's a really short window of time. Both of us have been prosecutors. You know it takes 60 days for the paperwork to come across your desk, let alone get on the docket and be addressed. So our students have a 
four-year, three-year, two-year window that they're here, and they are not oftentimes as interested in the criminal side. What we hear most often is, I just don't want to see this person on campus again. I don't want to have to turn the corner, and every time I turn the corner, think I'm going to run into that person in the eatery, in the parking lot, or at a social event. That's generally more of a request, and that's where Jessica and I have had many conversations about what Senator McCaskill is talking about proposing. Um, and then, I will just say this, but when we've had students reach out into the criminal realm, um, they have not had good experiences, and they have not been quiet about those experiences, which then taints the pool of everyone else on the campus that outside authorities were not kind to them. So I say that to say there are very few cases, and I'm speaking now as a prosecutor, that would meet some of those initial thresholds that the prosecutor's office is looking for when they decide whether or not to issue charges. As far as the second part of your question, I think a lot about this issue. And um, there was a, an article, I believe, in the New York Times just this past weekend where it wasn't an article, but I think it was a column where someone was advocating that instead of doing our having our own adjudication process, universities should be helping police and prosecutors to make their process more useful for students on our campus. Um, and the conversation that I had about that with someone was that I feel as though on our campus, we hold our community to a higher standard than the outside community necessarily does. Um, we expect our students, our faculty, and our staff to be responsible to and for one another. And so what we um, <coughs> believe is appropriate behavior um, of a sexual nature um, is different from what uh, the police or prosecutor would tell you is appropriate. We expect more from, from our folks. We expect uh, more consideration to be given to things like intoxication or um, the trauma that someone can be going through, the idea of frozen submission if someone just doesn't, isn't able to react in any way to unwanted sexual attention. Um, those are things that we can address on this campus because we are able to train our panel and we are able to um, to allow them to have that information when they're when they're listening to these cases and investigating them. Um, a jury of 12 people out in the community is going to have none of that background information. And they're going to carry with them their own prejudices of what you just said, of these privileged students that come from this campus and they choose to get drunk and whatever. I mean, you hear these horrible victim blaming things. And the education just has to improve you know, out in, in the community. But I believe it's just the opposite. I think that the standards to which we hold our students um, mean that they have to be more considerate of each other and the way they interact. And um, you know we're serious about that. We are willing and have suspended people and expelled people, um, people who were on track for very uh, big things. Let's just say. Uh, so we we really do I think hold people here to a higher standard. Okay. So uh, one thing we didn't mention is that there's the other person who you heard speaking in there was uh, Jessica Kennedy. She is the Title IX coordinator for our university. And now, when we heard this question and answer, basically we took two big takeaways from that. Uh, the first is that essentially, as as Miss King mentioned, there's a lot of cases, especially relating to sexual assault, that 
uh, victims do not feel they would not feel comfortable taking that to our regular societal criminal justice system. And even if they did, some of these cases are so gray that the legal system wouldn't even be able to handle them. They would kind of just toss them out or it would be inconclusive. So the USAIB and the university judicial code allows for us to adjudicate those cases, maybe provide closure for the victims and uh, to provide punishment or some sort of consequence for the perpetrator in instances where the legal system might not be able to function adequately. Right, and the second point uh, was articulated well by Ms. Kennedy, where as a community of peers, right, as students, faculty, staff members, we have the opportunity and, and really the impetus to hold ourselves accountable and we have and hold ourselves to a higher standard than what would otherwise be possible with our societal legal system. Yeah, and that's interesting that you know, these administrators bring up this idea of clarity and accountability um, because that's exactly what Willie suggested um, would have improved his situation, ex exactly what our RA friend suggested that um, she thinks needs to be changed or could improve the res life system. Yeah, and yet we see uh, everybody's calling for the same thing, and we still see the institutional problems with the USAIB. We see the institutional problems with res life and the judicial code. And the way that they handle anything ranging from the pressure the freshman year to mental illness to a pet dog, all these sorts of things tend to fall through the cracks. And the system that we have set up uh, of university judicial codes really isn't working. Um, and that kind of leads us back to the Young Sung So case in a way. Because if you recall, there family lawyers are arguing that it shouldn't exist in the first place. And so that really brings up the question, you know, where do we go from here? How do we conclude? <laughs> is it a flawed system that should be remedied or is it something, something that, Does yeah. it require revolution? <laughs> <laughs> or should it be totally scrapped, right? I, I mean, that's, and that's kind of one, yeah. one, of the one of the possible solutions or, you know, ways to move forward that the So family is advocating for. But I mean, but... There, that's that's kind of one extreme. There, there, are, there are an infinite number of possibilities. You know, you know the other extreme being you know, reform. You know, radically reforming it to and uh, where there's two very disparate uh, legal, you know, judicial systems: our societal one and our university one. But as as we were kind of talking about in the second episode. What what are the implications for the you know us as university students and the privilege then yeah, yeah. that we get to not to be bound by one and not bound by the other? Yeah, and so it seems like there's two sort of competing effects that we have here. That like on one hand, it, it does privilege us to have our own internal code, but then as as Tamara King and Jessica Kennedy said, it also allows ourselves to hold ourselves to a higher standard as a community which could be a good thing. And, uh, but that does you know, have that same flavor of character building and morality that we talked about when we were discussing the history of judicial codes that we saw them sort of shift away from that to a more legalistic structure, away mm -hmm. from this in loco parentis family sort of environment. Uh, but now that we're pursuing this restorative justice um, idea and this idea of community, that opens up 
a lot more pockets and opportunities for bias to come in um, and for individual discretion to come in, which might lead to uh, inconsistent applications of the judicial code. So let's rewind, you know, one last time. Let's revisit our, you know, this this overarching question of what's the role of the university in the non-academic lives of its students? Yeah, so there's clearly a lot at play here. There's balancing between like an external image of a school not wanting to have, not wanting to be known for crime. You know, that's that's part of what makes a school like Washington prestigious um, is its positive reputation. But also like if you let enough things fly on the inside, it leaves this weird question of are you actually building good citizens. And so it's probably, it's balancing, I think that's an important balance to consider is balancing this external image versus cultivating, you know, strong character and, and good humans in general. Yeah, and uh, on the question of, man, one of the questions that it's, that's really been getting to me is this idea of privileging college students over non-students, you know, adolescents of the same age. And the more I've thought about it with you guys and, you know, talking to all of our, our anonymous friends, um, you know, I really think that there is something, especially to what Willie was saying about, you know, maybe not in a courtroom where you have two identical cases and one is a college student and one person is not, you know, they should, they should be treated the same by the court. But there is still this aspect of community on a college campus um, this aspect of building each other up, holding each other accountable, um, this analogy of family that Willie made that really appeals to me in theory. Um, uh, but at the same time, the assumption of a family is that, you know, the parents love all their kids equally and they treat all their kids equally, at least they should. And that is just not the case. It's, you know, and it's not really even surprising. Um, based on your race, based on your socioeconomic background, based on who in the administration is dealing with you, you could be treated in a whole number of ways that are largely unpredictable. And so not everybody gets the same amount of love in this supposed community family structure. And if we're gonna move forward with, you know, keeping an internal judicial code and not just completely scrapping it like what the So family wants in their lawsuit, then we really have to figure out a way to spread the love equally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, and you know, I think, I think there are ways to to do that. And you know, as as we mentioned before, transparency and accountability, especially to students, I think are imperative. Right? You know, in the, in the in looking at the purpose of higher ed, right? It, the primary constituent is the student, right? Every, you know, we have mul there are multiple stakeholders, but Ultimately, it's for the student to learn, right? And it's, it, it, you know, it's fascinating because the you know we we're talking about institutional memory beforehand. There, the institutional memory is not with the students, right? And so they are inherently uh, put in a position in, in a slightly dis disadvantaged position in comparison to other stakeholders, right? Like administrators or faculty members. And so I think figuring out ways to pass along that institutional memory is really, really important. Um, and, I, and, you know, I also would throw out that, you know, that higher, you know, the, the university, broadly speaking, it, it, there's this nobility to it, right? There, there is this 
freedom of mm-hmm. being in the ivory tower where you can pursue research you uh, freely and in, in a way that is uninhibited from what would otherwise be limited in uh, outside the walls of, of the university, right? And so if we're in asking the question of, you know, what, what do we do with these, with our judicial, with the, with the university judicial system, right? Do we totally scrap it? Do we, you know, reform it? Like, what, what, what do we do? Well, I think that in keeping with that theme, we have an opportunity to freely explore this, this ideal, right? This, this sense of community where this, this judicial system that holds the community to a higher standard where there's accountability between peers and in ways that otherwise would, not, would never be explored in the criminal justice, in the legal system uh, that is beyond the university. And who knows, you know, if something were to work here, maybe in a small way, it could lead to changes and improvements and what we, what we see outside. Yeah, we got to remember that you know, the way we do things now, it's, it's in no way completely entrenched. Um, that's kind of what we were trying to point out in our second episode is that there's been so much change that's happened so quickly in the, in the formulation and reformulation, the framing and reframing of the university's relationship with its students. Uh, and the current model that WashU is practicing, restorative justice, very, very, very new. Um, it's based on some scholarship that happened just in the 90s, 80s and 90s. Uh, so, yeah, Elliot, I completely agree. I mean, we have an opportunity to change, and change happens very rapidly in universities, I think. Uh, so hopefully hopefully it, it, it goes in the right direction. Yeah, you know, as, as we wrap up, hopefully that this you know, exploring this and allows for greater awareness among students. And as as we look at how, you know, how can we improve the system, I think generally being aware of it, and also as we talk about the privilege of being university students, recognizing that and being cognizant of it is something that hopefully Frame's been able to, you know, be a, do, you know, do a little bit towards that. Yeah, so that being said, uh, again, this is our last episode. Um, thanks to everyone who listened. Um, we'll catch you on the other side of the fence. Yeah, we'll catch you on Alumni Weekend. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon. <laughs>